Now it's my great pleasure to introduce my guests for the evening. On my left and your right, we have Anna Fennell Honigman, who's a Berlin-based writer on art and fashion for artforum.com, Art in America, V Magazine, Whitehall, Dazed and Confused, ID, Saatchi Online, Style.com, British Vogue, Sleek Interview, and the New York Times Style section, evidently a writer much in demand, uh, as indeed, of course, are all my guests. On, on my right, uh, Michelle Cohn is a regular contributor to Artnet and other publications, and Dr. Cohn uh, is also an interdisciplinary scholar specialized in 20th century art with a particular interest in fascist regimes and their use of art as visual propaganda. And our fourth panelist this evening, Anthony Hayden Guest, is a writer, reporter, and cartoonist. He's author, among other books, of True Colors, The Real Life of the Art World, published back in 1996, and a perennial favorite on many 101 introductory course reading lists, and um, much referred to volume for its wit and insight into the world of art. So ladies and gentlemen, please welcome your panel. Great. Well, with no further ado, let's, uh, let's see some images. You know, when I was putting together the order for this evening's discussion, I was kind of anxious not to put the two Chinese or Chinese extraction artists next to each other as if to create, you know, a, a Chinese corner or something, thinking, no, these are four individual shows we're looking at, and let's just mix it up. But um, it then just didn't work with the, with the order for the other artists, so we do have them together. And there's um, um, a temptation, I think, to be resisted in just saying, okay, well, let's, let's ask about um, a Chinese aesthetic in, in these two works and get talking about, of course, we're dealing with an American artist of Chinese extraction and uh, a Chinese artist living in China, uh, different animals, uh, fundamentally, um, but um, it, it's, it's, as I say, tempting, but then more tempting not to be tempted to go down the uh, route of the, 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 the Chinese labyrinth, as it were. Um, but, I, but I nonetheless find myself having actually come back from China just uh, uh, last weekend, um, nonetheless kind of very much in Chinese mode and hard to repress thoughts about China, even when I'm looking at Bradley Slater and Miss um, Schnabel. So, um, so I'm therefore finding the, the temptation not to be tempted not so tempting. Um, <laughs> and even if I were to resist the temptation, if I just start with Sarah Zay, I'm looking at Sarah's work there at Asia Society, followed her career for as long as I have been able to, and the work there does seem to look quite distinct from earlier installations. Perhaps we all remember the installation at the Whitney Museum just a few years ago. Um, I, I had the privilege to see the one at the Cartier Foundation quite some, maybe about 10 years ago now. Um, much less the um, density, the all-overness, the overload that is, is sort of, to my 
mind, um, a characteristic of, of, of her aesthetic. Um, and uh, even more than this, than I'm used to in the work, maybe it's uh, a misreading, and I'm ready to be corrected, um, an impeccable kind of precision in, in uh, and uh, uh, a sort of almost humorously extreme and delicate um, preciousness in, in placement um, of, of, of objects um, in particularly the, the infinite line, the main body of new work, which I hope will be the focus of our discussion. Um, any of my panelists who are also familiar with uh, Sarah Jose's work wish to come in on that? Well, I was interested in the, there's much less what I'd call pop material in this show. Um, firstly, I think we, we focused on the pop stuff and, and probably put too much weight on it. In this new show, there's, there's some, there's things like stuff she bought from the hardware store, things like that, but they're not used in a pop way. I don't think they have any, it's interesting that she, she uses, and uses these mass materials but not in an Andy Warhol way at all. They're, they're kind of, that's just using them as if they were pigments or something like that. I find her extraordinarily complicated artist. Artists like um, Dennis Oppenheim and Alice Aycock who also evoke architecture and space and all that are much easier for me to grasp. I find it quite hard to grasp. Frankly, I find it quite impenetrable sometimes. Uh, in the second, in the room, second room, I was interested to see if she was the same. There's a little thing they use in the armed forces, this little circular device, which is a color blindness test, which used in almost every piece. I have no idea why. Um, mm -hmm. I find her very baffling answer, but it's really good to look at, really interesting to look at. I, I, frankly, I haven't figured her out. Right, that's a good place to be, isn't it, Michelle? Perhaps uh, <laughs> to, be, to be baffled, not know what it's about, but, but want to look more? Uh, yes. Um, I completely agree with what Anthony says. And so to, um, to deal with uh, the complexity, uh, I decided to uh, focus on her, on, the, on her apparent interest in vision, in perspective. Um, and I take the vision thing from the um, uh, prints that are on the, on the stairs up uh, to the show. Uh, which uh, contain numbers that now you see, now you don't, now you see, now you don't, which of course are problems of optics. And I think she's very interested in that. And I, I think the complexity is a way of disguising what her principal interest is, which is line, which she turns into strain, but which is still line. And perhaps in the um, illusion um, that um, traditional um, one-point perspective provides on, its on a two-dimensional surface, uh, and she translates this, um, this uh, convention of Renaissance uh, painting and drawing where you have this illusionary space, she translates it into three-dimensional space with the same idea of, of, of encouraging, of urging with certain lines that go into space toward a horizontal beam of horizon uh, to make us feel space in a three-dimensional way and space is emptiness. So it's very hard to convey space as something actually 
visible. And it's, I don't know whether anybody will agree with me. No, I, I, I certainly would. The sense of the, the void being an active exactly. place, which is um, philosophically very hard to grasp. It's, it seems to negate the point of being a void, but it is nonetheless, sorry, but within Chinese aesthetics, something quite, quite strong and something of, of, of immense force. Um, Anna, what did you make of the openness and closeness, or the, or the, uh, the, what did you make of the show? I actually, on some level, didn't really look at the physical objects as much as I was interested in sort of imagining um, the work almost as like a vivisection of a fiction writer's creative process, mm -hmm. and looking at it like tangents that maybe she herself wouldn't feel tempted to unravel and understand, but could sort of compile into a potential something else in process of being developed. And the reason why that was the way I relaxed into experiencing it was her use of banal kind of inspirational parts of the gallery itself. So the light fixtures, or even almost the embarrassing um, elements in a room that one intentionally overlooks because they're maybe a little uncomfortable, the um, uh, thermostat material or, or plugs, things that kind of uh, alert you to how um, rooms have to be functional but aren't design features. Um, the way that she kind of worked from there and developed these imaginative kind of extrapolations made me feel like it was unfinished. So to kind of investigate it and untangle it as it existed seemed almost like disrespectful to the development that it could potentially move towards. And I think what's wonderful about her work is it seems so limitless. So that's why I said fiction, because it almost seems as though like the parameters of physical space and reality are just not relevant for her process. So in the world of fiction, anything could potentially occur if it's allowed. Yeah. That seems exactly how, if her work is allowed, it could just grow. Um, yeah, that's the, the idea of the fiction writer at work. Um, I was fascinated by how in many instances, it looked like she'd emptied her pockets. And in other instances, uh, you know, you had the coins that were in her pockets, uh, uh, a subway ticket. I was, uh, with my failing eyesight, torturing myself to see which subway system it was. But, um, uh, and, and, or uh, just little receipts and things that we, we all seem to accumulate in our pockets. And then also the, um, the, Necessary equipment for putting an installation together, like uh, masking tape and uh, and and various kinds of thread that aren't don't look like they were chosen to express something, but are rather just they are what was with the artist as she was making. So I had a very strong sense of a, a, actually a tension between um, this being work in progress, artist still kind of present, the little stool, uh, the the uh, 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 so on and so forth, but and then, in contrast to that, the, as I said, exquisite preciousness 
with which things are, and the finality with which things are placed. Can I add a couple of things? I was yes. struck, I went first when I went there, there was a room on the right, I went to the room on the right first, and I saw on the wall a, I forget the name of it, it's, it's a little oblong device on the wall for measuring temperature. Yeah. And I said, boy, that looks just like a sarazine. <laughs> then in the next room, she's actually incorporated it in the piece. Right. And so she actually is, you know, sort of. <laughs> she noticed making, the same thing. <laughs> yeah, she actually is making it. She's doing that knowingly. I, I also like the fact that some of the pieces, they're chips, they're little piles of chips underneath, as if termites have been gnawing at it, which is really like Robert Morris in the box with sounds of its own making or something like that. The process is very much part of the work, which makes it a little less abstract and less ethereal. It makes it more real. Yes. But, um, uh, Michelle, we've, we've noticed these ephemeral things, the shop bought that Anthony sees, and the, uh, the uh, accoutrements of the, of the room that uh, Anna's noticed, the contents of the pocket. But um, there are, nonetheless, some, apart from the colorblind test charts, very um, specific objects brought into these assemblages, aren't there? Do they give us, uh, beyond the, um, the theme that you've adumbrated of perspective and, and the void, do they um, also give us uh, some, some clue as to meaning or some, uh, some um, uh, materials to construe our own meanings from? The rocks, for instance, or the photographs? Uh, well, the piece, uh, the piece which continues uh, outside and has uh, several um, sort of um, Chinese garden element mm -hmm. uh, is uh, the most accomplished. But uh, um, my overall feeling is that um, um, the interest is not in expressing truly any subjective consciousness, uh, even though I love the idea of her using things out of her pocket. As I say, I think that uh, if I were to relate it to something, uh, I would relate her work to the work of Sato. I think uh -huh. it's very much into phenomena the of Brazilian, perception. Uh, yeah, yeah right. I was having a show at the Gray Art Jesus, Gallery. Uh, uh, that it's very analytical, and that the uh, little things out of the pockets, all these accidental things, are to detract, to humanize uh, uh, artwork, which is uh, basically <clears throat> cold. Right. And where the meaning is really what's there. The meaning is about, or at least to me, is yeah. about the research that uh, uh, she conducts about uh, 2D, 3D, the threshold, the way 3D and 2D connect, et cetera, et cetera. That's how Are, are we sort say. of coming to a consensus? Anna mentioned not even looking at the actual objects. Um, are we coming to a sort of consensus? Not that I would subscribe to it, but that um, uh, the, the, the materials are almost the artist's private business, but they're just shapes, colors, forms to be broken down in, in this process of making, and, this, and that the subject lies completely beyond the actual previous life of some of these, most of these materials? Yeah, I think the, well, some objects are very solid, those things from the hardware stores I said, I'm there, there, they're on the ground, they were used in making the piece, a lot of the stuff, you don't know where it is, you don't know where it came from. I don't think that what it, I don't think there's, that's not being referred to in the piece, is it? it it's um, uh, just like CRR's dots, they're there for mm. building the piece. 
Right. There is no unity in the choice of the materials, which I was just thinking about Katie Nolan and her throwaway pieces. Right. There is there a much more directed uh, sensibility than there is in the uh, mm. Z. Right. I don't think they're private in the way of being precious or um, <clears throat> valued by her as an individual, per se, but something that could just uh, build to spark inspiration. Yes, so. when, I, when I said private, I didn't mean that drawing us into the depth of her soul private. I, I just meant um, she's not making a Jesus Raphael Soto. She's not doing a Damien Hirst dot painting. But the things she's using are just actually, they may have, and they probably do have, meaning for her as things. But she's just actually maybe drawing on things to be um, used almost as material in the way that uh, oil paint is a material. Um, in other words, it's, it's uh, installation, uh, the, the, but it's, it's a very in a traditional painterly or sculptural approach to making an installation in this space. I'm not necessarily saying that, but I'm hearing that perhaps from, from the three co-panelists. I, I think what influenced my interpretation of the total show so much more than maybe everyone else was the um, uh, drawing she made from other people's biographies where she held right. these conversations yes. and developed the early work, yes. yeah. mm -hmm. um, sort of portraits based on the kind of imaginative tangents and legends and what I loved in that was that um, there was one where uh, the story clearly began with the birth of the storyteller so it went from the hospital maternity ward upwards and so there was this sense of kind of information being rooted and something so like f um, fundamental and uh, nervous way to start a story that then mm. kind of extrapolated into this mythic kind of mm -hmm. epic fairy tale-esque aspect and then I took that experience and brought it into the installation room. Yes, and that I think would vindicate Michelle's uh, point because it's, it's really about a sort of, in Kant's phrase, uh, purposiveness without purpose. So when you take somebody's story, um, you take somebody's, to do a portrait, you say, give me five very significant moments in your personal story. You then make your work and then you destroy the list of the five. It keeps the energy of a significant narrative, but it loses the actual significance of that actual narrative. So it becomes a, a phenomenological. I, I do yes, feel. I'm I sorry, agree. Michelle. No, no, this is. It. I, I do feel looking at them, they're quite powerful to look at, very powerful, some of them. And I suspect, as with, say, Kandinsky or Malevich, that there are buried meanings there, or to deliberately buried. You have no, otherwise, they have so much formal strength. Mm -hmm. I don't think you've seen that, maybe wants you to know. Yes. about any more than Malevich did, you know. But if, but if mm. Anna's fiction model is, is, mm. is, most, is valid, then if she assembles those materials for us, what she wants, her intention, becomes um, quite irrelevant because um, we can then project onto or with, mm. with mm. those ingredients, as it were. I mean, she's, she's, in other words, done some marketing, but it's for us to cook the stir-frying. Mm. Well, may I just quote what the New York Times said because I think that that uh, bit, bittersweet analysis is pretty relevant. Yes, it's, she said it was. Uh, I don't remember 
recently. Ze is an intellectual and worldly artist, one who talks about space like an architect and vision like an ophthalmologist, rhapsodizes about a shifting perspective in Chinese painting, one who sounds, in short, like the MacArthur grant recipient and Ray Gale graduate that she is. I haven't read that review. It could only be Roberta Smith. But, it uh, wasn't. It wasn't? Oh, well, somebody has picked up Roberta's uh, whiplash. <laughs> yes. Final retort. Well, okay. We like to think we, you don't need the New York Times if you're here, because you're getting, <laughs> uh, as Christian Vivro's phone said, uh, a year's worth of reviews in one evening. But let us proceed to our next artist, um, Ai Weiwei. And Michelle, let me start with you, as you are an authority on <laughs> artists who made great work but compromised with terrible regimes. Um, what do we make of this artist's work who won't compromise with his regime? In other words, I think the question for all the panel, um, or my question for myself, which I'm going to bully the panel into thinking about, is I'm sure we all applaud Ai Weiwei, the human rights uh, activist. Um, does it tally with the work? Um, I, um, I cannot help uh, when I read about uh, Al Weiwei, uh, noticing that um, he lived in New York in the 1980s. And who was, who, who were we looking at in 1985-86? Do you all remember? Well, it was some of us weren't born, but, uh, but tell, us, tell, us who, tell us who oh, you were looking at. Oh, all right, well, all too well. It was the Coons, it was, uh, um, it was um, Heim Steinbach, it was uh, Ashley, Alan, Bickerton. Ashley Bickerton, Peter Halley, but among the sculptors, it was really uh, Coons, Heim Steinbach, uh, Alan McCollum. Oh, and we were looking at who we have to look at when we look at him in Mary Boone now, which is Barbara Kruger. And I feel that the strategies of those artists in 1986 did not escape the notice of Al Weiwei. And by that I mean that those artists were ironists, but they were ironists who detected the signs, the connotations, denotations of everyday objects, whether it was a, a vacuum cleaner or a, or a toilet uh, cleaner or a basketball. They knew how to uh, extract from those objects from everyday culture uh, signs that um, were critical of the establishment of uh, capitalism, of uh, consumerism, etc., etc. And yet they made tons of money, I must admit. So the irony, the critique, uh, was attenuated uh, by uh, this, uh, by, by that aspect of their work. And when I went to uh, the opening of Al Weiwei, uh, I happened to uh, ask uh, one of the people who, in the gallery, uh, how much the show was selling for, and guess how much? Millions, more than a million. More than a million, and they're not supposed to be sold separately. It's gonna to go to a museum for, for at least a million. 
Okay, and of course, when you think about the Tate show, then uh, it becomes several millions. But anyway, so this, this being said, I cannot help but uh, put Al Weiwei in the context of this um, 80s period when um, artists very cleverly followed theory, um, saw uh, everyday culture as uh, a dictionary of signs with which to critique. Forgive me though, but how are sunflower seeds ah, um, I uh, everyday uh, 1980s objects? Well, they're not 19, that's the whole point. Uh -huh. uh, he doesn't use uh, capitalist uh, objects. He uses his own his history, Chinese history. And if you read the list bit about him, you realize that sunflowers are a very important uh, uh, culture uh, uh, product of the countryside of China where he was raised, and that um, sunflowers appear in communist posters to, because of their strange properties. As you know, sunflowers go around the sun. And so the posters uh, which refer to that show sunflowers as being, uh, as, as flowers, a type of nature, uh, enslaved to the sun, Mao. Right, right. Um, Anna, um, I'm, I'm sure we're all familiar with the earlier work of Ai Weiwei when, for instance, he would use a Coca-Cola uh, logo, which would hopefully keep Michelle happy, on a, on a Han vase, or a reproduction of one, hopefully. Um, but <laughs> do you follow Michelle's uh, line of thought on this, or did you have your very different feelings looking at this installation? Um, I did looking at this installation different from the Tate because I felt like this, the way it was presented and contained, also the way that the audience was discouraged from actually really interacting with it. Um, I was, there were other friend of mine who was in the audience and we were definitely told to keep a distance, which makes sense considering the health hazard that was on earth, but definitely did create a real boundary where this particular um, installation really felt kind of like a souvenir. Mm -hmm. and more like um, a souvenir in the sense of it being kind of manufactured to be uh, purchased and taken away than to actually be um, interacted with and, and experienced as the authentic thing. So I definitely do see that element. But I also was thinking more of sunflowers in terms of their part of the urban organic life of um, Chinese cities where people chew them and spit them and they're a lot more violent in the way that they're part of this litter and um, just the real kind of churning city aspect. So seeing them as kind of representatives of individuals and sort of the special unique aspects each individual has because each one was so um, delicately designed and, and like a snowflake in its, its special unique qualities. Um, versus thinking of the like manic energy of Chinese cities and sunflower seeds actually being kind of one of the most offensive parts of mm. kind of roaming through yeah. these already really um, aggressive cityscapes and just uh, feeling kind of like as an individual your um, personal space is so violated and then the sunflower seeds being a part of that and um, seeing them kind of so calm and well presented, it's 
this sort of pristine, pristine souvenir mm -hmm. had both a sort of sentimental and a um, little uh, disorientingly distanced. Yeah, effect. yeah. You need uh, one of Jeff Koons' vacuum cleaners yeah. to clear up all the uh, <laughs> shells after the uh, Beijingers have been uh, chewing away on the sunflowers. Um, Anthony, there's been a very radical shift in what was the must have been the original intention of um, Ai Weiwei with this series now. Um, after the Tate Gallery uh, wasn't able to present it fully the way uh, it was intended, uh, there were health and safety issues and the public couldn't sift through these porcelain, each one of those sunflowers is, is, is uh, hand-painted individual porcelain uh, representations of a sunflower seed. Um, but they created so much dust that it created a major health hazard for people to, as the artist had wanted, be able to uh, sift them through their fingers. So it's gone from being this um, uh, interactive um, masses of sunflowers, millions of them filling uh, the whole of the turbine, whole of the Tate, going right up to the walls, and to being this... It's still millions. They're still, they're still, you're still getting our money's worth of, uh, of seeds, I guess, but uh, it's, uh, well, it must have been tens of millions then in the... Uh, it's now six. It's now a mere six. So um, uh, um, a very different kind of experience, right? Um, what, do we, what do you get from this current... I think about the agent that supported Michelle, uh, quite somewhere of Dali, who said, Cezanne painted apples, he didn't paint carrots. You know, one paints the symbolic vegetables. Symbolic um, I was at the Tate also, and it was very, you know, mildly apocalyptic experience. This was very different. I had I learned two, actually, I learned two things I knew already, really. One was that uh, I went to the opening. I thought the opening was awful, because you looked and you saw this manicured little garden. I thought, my God, they've turned it into a kind of floral garden. And there was security people around and all that. And, but then I went back and there was no one there. Totally different experience. I asked them, apparently I went away, decreed, the, the, I think it's three meters, a three meter uh, gap around it. It was really quite moving. It was almost like Terence Coe. But I would say something else, which is that, um, and there's a bit of this in Serizy also, that I think there's a new kind of art, which is art where there's so much theater in it, and so much architecture, if you look at the art of the past, even, you know, fairly formless art, like Pollock, like uh, Schwitter's collage or whatever, it actually obeys the ancient harmonies almost always. You know, even earth art, even the Water de Maria, even Christo. But now we have this new sort of art, which is also big and theatrical. And I, it's not just, and it's actually very hard to judge. You either accept, say, hey, this is pretty good, if you look at it, and I, I think also of Tara Donovan or Jason Rhodes, you think, would I actually notice if that chunk was over there? And the answer is no, I wouldn't. But I like the whole theatrical effect of it, you know. But can I judge as a piece of work? Would I see if that dune of porcelain seeds was over there? I think, no, I, it, it, would, it, would, it would pass me by. I think we have to accept that this is an art that one almost judges as theatre in a way, and I find it very effective when there was no one there. When there were millions of people there, it was like going around 
the Kabovkov thing at the Whitney, mm. which was supposed to be an isolation ward or something, filled with people. It was me, it was robbed of meaning. Mm. But when it's all alone, it was, it was very moving, I thought. Yes, I, I'm glad you were very moved. I, I walked around it a few times. Uh, I, I also had the security guard experience. And I, I must say that between, um, between Mary Boone and the Damien Hirsch show next door at Gagosian, I actually saw those two galleries had more uh, uniformed custodians than the Forbidden City. But um, uh, I think even if there wasn't this security guard who because I was moving, got very suspicious of me, thought I was trying to steal a seat. Um, even if he wasn't, if I didn't have his heels clicking behind me as I was trying to give it as much energy as I get as much of the possibility of a, any kind of transport from looking at the work as possible, um, I, I just found it immensely uh, cold. I mean, there's a, this beveled rectangle, uh, so it sort of... Um, Art-wise, puts me in mind of uh, um, well. I mean, you couldn't. It's not even a candy you could take away and eat. But it was not. Uh, uh, but it also puts me in mind of, uh, say, a Richard Long um, arrangement of something taken from another place and put here in the gallery. Whereas I, I didn't see it at the Turbine Hall, but from all the photographs I saw of the Turbine Hall, um, I got the sense of a, a, a sense of a much more uh, overwhelmingly. Uh, sumptuous and theatrical kind of experience there than I was getting at all at Mary Boone. Yeah, it's funny because at the Turbine Hall I did think about Felix Gonzalez Torres and um, how the sunflower seeds appear to be so uniform and so there's a sense that this is a population that's kind of been flushed with their individuality and the kind of sweetness that comes from being colorful and um, sort of obviously the kind of sugar high like frantic element in the West where there's all this bubbly sense of your creativity is sweet and something you indulge in and maybe kind of vacuous but is still sweet and exciting. And because you could really involve yourself with it, there was a real intimacy, this kind of feeling of engaging with um, like a human element, but there wasn't any of that at Mary Boone's. As a cultural flushed. historian, I'd like to, I'd like to um, go into um, the, the, the history of those seeds, because I think that has to be raised. The, the seeds uh, are made of uh, ceramic. They're made in a city that um, traditionally uh, made of great porcelain urns and all kinds of very refined objects. And the whole town was specialized in that kind of ceramics work. And I think Al Weiwei um, uh, had, a, 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 had as one of his intentions to revive uh, this town uh, by um, having them uh, produce these individual ceramic little objects. Uh, and it's interesting, I mean, I enjoyed very much looking at the um, um, video of the whole process, which apparently has 30 different stages um, in the production of these little seeds, from shaping them to painting them, and all is done by these admirable and very talented um, crafts people in this town who now have no more work to do because their work is fast. So I would like to bring this uh, as one of the 
uh, intentions of Al Weiwei, which explains... I'm sure they were pleased for the work and the money, but it can't have been very um, aesthetically rewarding work to make each seed. I imagine, I, I thought so, but looking at, the, um, at that video, they all seemed very pleased, and they took their little mm. bundles ah, well, they're, of They've been trained plastic. in the art of looking pleased so. when someone's making a video. <laughs> you will notice, so many, many critics have taken pot shots at Damien for not painting his own dots. Yes. But no one's saying, I wait, wait, did not make his own seeds. <laughs> oh, no, that's for sure. Well, he, he'd be... He'd, he'd, he'd have his work cut out for him if he did. Um, but, but, but Damien's dot painters are just sort of anonymous jobbing painters. Ai Weiwei is doing something rather comparable to, uh, say, Anthony Gormley or um, uh, Boetti e Alighieri in actually the who is making it for him is integral to the aesthetic meaning of the work. Yeah. So I think that's yeah. the fundamental distinction. Yeah. Between... That was a joke. No, well, I <laughs> treat jokes seriously. But anyway, good. Um, what do our, um, do our audience have any jokes for us? Um, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, doesn't have to be a question, can be a comment, response to either uh, Sarah Zay or Z or Ai Weiwei or Al Weiwei. We've been having quite a variety of pronunciations this evening. Um, uh, but you will have to come to the end of the row or something, improvise, work it out. We'll, 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 we'll get to you, you'll get to us. So please, uh, raise your hands. If, uh, love to some comments. Yes, uh, yeah, great, that's convenient. Uh, I, I experienced the Iowa Way as a, like a seashore. And then when you were telling us about the process of these people in this dying business, it began to look more like a big, big grave, uh, like a seashore. Because it, it was very quiet when I was there too, and I felt like I couldn't get close, mm -hmm. but I could observe it in this huge, beautiful room. I mean, it was very architectural when you looked at it without the history, just as a, just as a, the gray tones, I, mm -hmm. I quite thought it was, it, it reminded me a little of death and, and the sea. Death and the sea, okay, thank you. I think I saw a hand begin to go up in the middle, is that correct? Yeah, do that, that's best, best, yes. I, I was wondering if anybody thought about the environmental commentary from Weiwei. Uh, China is trying to develop it's destroying its environment in the process. And is the commentary that these seeds turn out to be hazardous to your health something potentially that he intended people to experience? Hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. We don't have to answer. We'll just, we'll just absorb register. that as register. Thank you. I uh, personally know I will wait during the 80s. And while he was in New York, we used to play poker. And he win most of the time. Very good strategist. So recently, I mean, you can't get away from not reading about Ai Weiwei. Sometimes you get bombed 10 articles the same day. So that's sort of in, a, in an elevated position that you can never imagine anybody could be as an artist. He's a real person. I remember someone told me he made cover of Newsweek or something uh, last year. So, the strata that he's in make us become totally mythicized by 
who he is. But he's a human being. He's a person. And I think a lot of the energy came from his exile of the family during the Cultural Revolution. He's a rebel. His father was a rebel, a real communist, but got kicked out by Mao. So imagine a childhood of that nature and growing up in exile. This is Xinjiang, like border of, of China, no man's land. The father was cleaning toilets because he was damned. So after Mao died, they came back. And these are basically elite people that got let out in the 80s when, when it was possible. Before that was closed. And I was one of them. And I know a whole bunch of them that came out at that time. Reference to Jeff Koons, yes. So was Keith Haring. So was Andy Warhol. So it's everybody that was on the table and off the table is there. This is a total absorption from Mao to capitalism. And, and uh, in terms of Jingdutsen, the place where they make the, the seats and so forth, that was a historical ceramics village that still does it. And I think Ai Weiwei himself has learned a lot about capitalism during this period that was here, how these guys make so much money. We're all talking about millionaires, Andy Warhol, Jeff Koons. Of course he wants to be one. So here's an opportunity, okay? A dollar, a sunflower seed. <laughs> That's cheap. Okay, and he's gonna sell that piece. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you, it's great to have an account from uh, a friend who goes way back, excellent. Good. Uh, yes. Uh, yes. Good. Good. Okay. I just wanted to, to ask if this sort of backstory on Ai Weiwei is so important, especially that video of how the sunflower seeds are made and, and the uh, town where it's made and all of that. Why isn't more of that material shown with the, with the artwork? If, if we need to know that to appreciate it, really. Good question, good question. I didn't get the question. Uh, there's another one there. When I was seeing both Sarah Z and Ai Weiwei, I see this proliferation of detail and um, information, and that to me is, I wonder if it references nature, if, if it references on both levels um, the, the amount of leaves in a forest, the amount of um, elements that Sarah Z works with, or the sheer number of sunflower seeds. To me, I wonder if that has occurred to anybody, or if that's, um, that, that they could be referencing just the sheer quantity with Sarah, nature. Oh, sorry, with Sarah Z, definitely. I had this sense it was like a mold, and the way it was developing seemed potentially unhealthy, but it seemed as if the way sort of black mold grows in a room and can kind of have these interesting patterns, even though those patterns are undesigned and whatever sort of method or, or meaning there would be to them would have to be um, uh, imposed by someone who wasn't fully understanding what they were looking at and the the natural and controllable aspects of it, but could potentially 
find them embedded. I think definitely with her, there's that feeling that if left alone, like if the room were locked, those pieces would continue <laughs> to like overtake. Fantastic. Uh, yes, one more comment, then we must move on to our other shows. I just think you um, brought up a very interesting thought about how the two installations of the Tate and here in New York were so different. And uh, yeah, the first one was, um, you know, you were supposed to be involved and to, it was free and feeling the sunflower seeds. And, and the second, this installation is so rigid and controlled and contained. And I just wonder if, did his intention and his message change and evolve through that experience? Or do you think the intention and the message remain the same with the two very different installations? I, I would like to uh, I would like to bring up something that may be a little too simple-minded, but um, uh, I saw uh, a video of uh, Al Weiwei walking on, uh, on the piece at the Tate, and the sound was the sound of crushing, <laughs> crushing, and therefore I said, aha, so those seeds are Chinese people who are being crushed by this big, powerful man. And when I, went, when I saw the show at the uh, Mary Boone, aha, now the guards <laughs> are protecting the little people, the little seeds. But it's a little simple-minded, I'll grant you. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I would say that you know, Ai Weiwei has been savagely beaten up by the Chinese police. He's obviously an extremely courageous man. And I don't think it's incidental that Ai Weiwei in China, Voina in Russia, and maybe um, William Kentridge in South Africa, who have the good fortune to be making art in countries with fewer freedoms, the United States, are making very great art. Excellent. Okay. Well, let's, um, let's move on to our uh, second batch of shows then. Well, marvelous. Take the opportunity to thank Molly Flannery, uh, editorial assistant at Art Critical, who put together this evening's PowerPoint and presented it. Thank you. So, lights, please. Um, Anthony, you were wondering in relation to big installations by artists as various as Donovan, uh, Rhodes, and... Ai Weiwei and Sarah Zay, Z, um, whether um, you know the the theatricality of the large and overwhelming um, installation has, to some extent, uh, well, to a great extent, um, robbed the work, robbed artwork of the organizing gestalt that relates it to in to the experience of artworks of over centuries uh, past. Uh, that gives uh, the viewer uh, some some bearings to to be able to decide whether the the, the piece works or not. Um, here we have a video by uh, Bradley Slater um, that um, can or that can if it wishes to or might not um, relate to the experience the experiences either of the history of painting or the history of um, the available history of movies. Um, what, what gave you your bearings with the work? Movies or painting or something else? I went straight, but I think it's uh, very unfashionable, which I think is wonderful. 
It's like um, it goes straight back to Cocteau or something like that. It's deeply romantic. It ignores the whole history of video from Bruce Nauman on. I know a bit about Sailor Bradley's work. It's about alienation. It's about teenage angst. He's made things about uh, some people like Ian Curtis, uh, Kurt Cobain, Michael Jackson. It's, it's very, it's unashamedly full of feeling and romance. I think it's wonderful. I like the work a lot. It's very literary, it's very educated, and um, I think it's, I have nothing bad to say about it. All right, great. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Anna, Kurt Cobain would then tie in to uh, Elizabeth Payton, um, an artist I know that you've written about and, and admire and, and interview. Um, when I was seeing the, I, I must, have, I guess, have read the press release when we were first thinking about shows to include in in this evening's lineup. But I had um, one of those bizarre experiences when I was, I was looking at the film and thinking, hmm, this this character reminds me of uh, uh, Catcher in the Rye. I I hope it doesn't say that in the press release. And that's my original <laughs> insight. And then of course the wretched press release. Holden Caulfield. Oh, damn. Um, was it a romantic experience for you? Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. I, um, I actually find it incredibly moving and absorbing and sort of slipped into it and saw it a couple of times and bizarrely connected it to the Ai Weiwei in, in a way that I'm going to try and walk through, just in the sense of... Um, Assimilation, as uh, Michelle was talking about outside a bit about assimilation, this way that individuals come to New York and try and assert an identity or discover an identity. And um, the protagonist of this movie is not actually Slater himself, but the doppelganger that he um, recruited early on when this um, guy, uh, I think his name's Ben, moved from California to New York to either become a musician or an actor and was kind of unsure of his own identity and, and placement, but looked so much like Slater that they were mistaken for each other and beca became constant collaborators. And um, watching this awkward character who at certain points was kind of interrelating with his environment, but in antisocial and, and unacceptable ways but also ways that you see people interrelate with their environment in cities. So at one point, he kind of slides down um, the beam of uh, cathedral. I forget what St. Patrick's, St. yes. St. Patrick's, down right. The, it's been the a long banister, time since yes. I lived in New York. So yeah, he slides down the banister. And um, at that point, he's kind of behaving like a New Yorker would, just being familiar with his surroundings. And then he's uh, stepping on the cracks. So there's something sort of like superstitious, maybe potentially kind of schizophrenic. He's, he's acting just um, as abnormal as people in Manhattan are used to seeing someone act, but as like obviously uncomfortable and in the process of self-examination. And then what's amazing is there's this moment when Slater himself passes him and blends so seamlessly and so comfortably, but is oddly less sophisticated looking. So the pseudo Slater slash Holden Caulfield is dressed in black and has like this sort of sleek Ian Curtis kind of New York-esque like, you know, knife thin look about him. But Slater himself has kind of long hair and is just a little like pale and banal looking in relation to 
what would be like what a non-New Yorker would think New Yorkers would look like and would maybe come to New York to try and blend. But then blending just makes you a person in the city itself. So it started me thinking just about assimilation and being part of part of a cityscape and like also what people I guess now in the financial crisis think of as success and like if you can't make it in New York then does that mean you can't make it anywhere? All this anxiety the characters seem to have seem to, seem to relate to that. So I did find it really articulate and moving and super, super relevant and bizarrely so, so relevant that it became like the centerpiece that I was relating all the other shows to. So yes, wow. really well, liked uh, it. Yeah. <laughs> We've Big got fan. Uh, two very uh, thumbs up there. Yeah. So um, um, Michelle, uh, I found, um, I saw myself thinking, I watched it a few times, and uh, um, one of the, the pleasurable experiences for me, you know, as an adoptive New Yorker, is that uh, in the first few moments of Woody Allen's Manhattan uh, experience that we inevitably have in seeing um, anything that's uh, taking place in, in New York. Um, but actually, then I find myself thinking not of Woody Allen, but of Rudy Burkhardt. It seems to be that a very uh, strong poetic of the city. Um, did, you, did you pick up that vibe? Um, yes and yes and no. Um, curiously, even though I was completely in empathy with the feelings um, embodied by this uh, lanky figure who may be waiting for someone who doesn't show up and so is wandering about, not knowing where to go and how to. I mean, this is an experience that I'm sure all of us have had, in which I felt at the beginning of the piece that he was sort of standing, waiting, and nobody came. And so he was totally disoriented. But really, what I found so exciting was the quality of the sound that accompanied the piece and the photographing. And as I was looking uh, at the, the still images, I was totally impressed by the points of view, which are not like that, but sometimes from bottom, sometimes down. Um, the sound which accompanies sounds are just perfectly in tune with the, um, with the moods and gesture mm -hmm. of the actor. So I saw it as much in emotional terms as in formal terms, which for me is unusual. Oh, wow. So I liked, I liked the piece on both counts. Yeah, the sound aspect was really absorbing because it was this really lonely, empty sound. You could kind of imagine would be sort of the sound of someone between thought. And it just seemed so isolated and enhanced that sense that this person was disconnected. There were, there were city aspects to the sound, but there were also these moments that were like these kind of There was breaks. ominous music as well, wasn't there? And um, yeah, I was put in mind a little bit of uh, Jeremy Blake's Ossie Clark uh, Video, if, if only because of the romantic subject, um, but but obviously without the um, visual invention of uh, uh, Blake being a rather straight uh, narrative. Um, I also couldn't really follow the dialogue quite a lot of the time. Was that a problem for anyone else? It was that quotes, wasn't it? He was was quoting from a book called the novel of cocaine or something totally unread. German novel from the 1920s. Right. I, I'm not sure if one's supposed to hear it, really. All right. Okay. Mm. But I was fascinated by the shoes. 
yes. by the walking, yeah, yeah. by the crossing of the street, where all you see are these people crossing, mm. wearing all kinds of shoes with That was a which, very Burkhardt that, moment for yeah, me, you see, yes, very, yes. Very, very good. And there were real people. The fellow you see jumping into a limousine with long white hair early on is Stephen Greenberg, you know, the I didn't know. collector of Art Deco. Right. Gosh. Well, Angie Hayden Guest has the inside scoop on this uh, <laughs> video for sure. Um, Anna, I'm hoping you're going to have the inside scoop on um, Lola Montez Schnabel. Tell us why we should be worshipping at the altar of Lola Montez Schnabel. Well, okay, I don't have the inside scoop, and I actually didn't like the show at all, <laughs> so I can't really help with either of those things. But I do think that what was interesting is that um, the inside scoop that was discussed in W and a bunch of other publications really really distanced me even further than I would have otherwise been from appreciating the show because there were aspects that I found compelling and those aspects were the candy apple reds crystallized I'm not even sure what it was it was some kind of varnish that was physically attractive but in terms of the inside scoop, she uh, was telling the W reporter that she was going through this period of enforced celibacy and intense yoga, going to India. That's more inside than we were hoping for. But, anyway, what, but the reason why this was problematic yes. was because the canvases were so chaotic and um, disordered and in flux and anxious that if that's what she's doing and she was sort of presenting this as like a byproduct of being more at peace which I would assume yoga and like not having to deal with all these other distractions would hopefully bring you but the result seems like uh, someone who's sort of pre-detox like a very toxed person <laughs> Yeah. And that was even more problematic than if I'd just gone in like raw and wanted to experience them just as a girl's like messy right. inner. So she's a bad advertisement for yoga, yoga. and celibacy. <laughs> <laughs> and Don't... those things need advertising so badly. <laughs> right. Okay. Um, Anthony, do you concur with that verdict? No, not really. Um, the gorilla in the room, of course, her father is Julian Schnabel, who's an art star. And it brings in the whole thing of lineage. I mean, that, now, um, young Ryman, you know, his father's all, but his father's not an art star, or indeed Kiki Smith's father, Tony Smith, but neither of them are art stars. It has not really um, affected uh, reportage on their work. Um, as Anna points out, uh, Lola Montez Schnabel's show was revealed at W. Is reviewed in the Times, not in the art section, but in the style section mm -hmm. at great length. I think it's kind of unfair, as a matter of fact. I was at first um, talk against it just for, on the illustrations, because the, the work in some ways is reminiscent of her father, unlike Will Ryman or Kiki Smith. The colours are not dissimilar, and the, her, I think, very deft handling of paint. Is, and 
putting that together with figuration is again not dissimilar. That said, I think the paintings are pretty good, and you see, it's got, you know, I really, I really, I was surprised that I enjoyed them as much as I did, as a matter of fact. Well, good, excellent, yeah. uh, Michelle. Um, I, I actually, funny enough, had a, a strong European feeling with some of these paintings. So the, the, the most positive thing I got from them was that strongly reminded of uh, prints by Pierre Leszczynski, the Belgian artist, especially with that very graphic green against red. Um, that was the strongest and best I could get from the works. Um, what was your feeling? Um, I didn't see Schnabel, but I saw a lot of Schnabel's friend, Clementi. Right, again, European sensibility. Uh, both in, um, in the um, mix of figuration and abstract forms, and in this ambition of allegory. And that's where she doesn't uh, do anything for me because allegory is an important uh, matter. And I don't think that she understands what allegory is about, that it has to be an allegory of something, not just allegory. Right. <laughs> yes, I, I would concur with that. I, I, I found the figures, I, I, could, I could only enjoy these paintings abstractly. Um, if I could just look at them, well, I saw it as basically as one painting, because the, the paintings, unfortunately, yeah, had no yeah. gestalt. So it's best just to look at the whole room and treat it as a decorated room. Um, but in doing so, it, you know, the, the green and the red, but basically, I went away. The best thing I could think of was green and red. Um, but uh, it, it was this lack of a gestalt, the illegibility of the figures, um, and the this sort of uh, sloppy indulgence of the whole project um, was very unsatisfying for me. But I need to look again because I respect Anthony Hayden Guest's eye, but I'd love to hear some more well, words from Anthony good, Hayden. Good graphics. I think her, her, her black marks were excellent. I thought that the, the, the composition was good and very strong. And, and I think we're, in a way, we're, we're conditioned by celebrity culture to be overly harsh sometimes. I didn't, I don't... If she had a different name, we, A, she probably wouldn't be being discussed. Uh -huh. and, and B, we wouldn't maybe be so, so stringent. Honestly, I... I appreciate that she was being discussed because of the celebrity name, but I really was trying to engage with them just on their own merits, which I didn't find to be my merit. Yeah, but I, I would resist that accusation because I too don't go with the celebrity thing. And as you rightly say, everyone has a father. I mean, Ai Weiwei's father is a very well-known mm. poet in China. People say, oh, he's a chip off the old block. No, I mean, each, each person is, uh, is on their own, really. And uh, quite often there are very well-known artists who, who have pretty unknown artists as fathers as well. Picasso or Ben Nicholson. Well, not quite Ben Nicholson, but Picasso certainly. So, um, no, I, I don't think it's fair or true to say we're dissing her because she's... Uh, Julian's quite an overwhelming presence. Well, you know, Tony Smith apparently was pretty overwhelming. I mean, you know, where does one draw the line with overwhelming? <laughs> Well, um, I think that the contribution of Schnabel, which was uh, his questioning canvas as the only type of space on which one paints. And I think his importance uh, comes out of these plate paintings and then his 
paintings on um, oriental carpets. I mean, that has led to a whole new, to a whole, to quite a few artists. I forget their names because my I'm not good at names. But there's a whole bunch of artists uh, nowadays, particularly women, who uh, have given up uh, on the idea that uh, first thing you do, you grab a canvas, you put it on an easel, and you start painting that the, the canvas itself is a speaking element and that if you put, um, if you put um, uh, broken plates, uh, the connotations will be different than if it's just canvas. And I think that what she missed out on, uh, frankly, on this inheritance is to find an, her own way of critiquing the canvas. Well, I'd say perhaps in her defense, actually, the very weird property of the red paint on the canvas was formerly a point of intrigue to me. In a, I'm going to now uh, undermine my declaration of innocence by saying a, a, a rather cruel, journalistic little thought, spiteful thought came into my mind that I was thinking, perhaps these were plain paintings and the plates have all fallen off and that's why the red has that weird look of glue adhering in a bizarre fashion to the... But I'm, I'm not going to put that into the record because it's a mean and spiteful thought. But, but what, what is going on with that red paint? Why, why does it mottle and congeal in that funny way? Is there a technical explanation or is it a formal thing? Is it, a, is it part of the meaning? Well, we have, paint, we have painters in the audience. Yes. Yeah, let's open. Well, let's open it up then. And let's please, if you've got a passionate defense of Lola Montez Schnabel, to, to compliment Anthony Hayden Guest, we particularly want to hear that. So uh, uh, keep your hand up only if you've got something positive to say about Lola Montez Schnabel. <laughs> uh, and afterwards, we'll take in a discussion also of Bradley Slater. Yeah. Hi. I was just interested in uh, what I took to be a very visceral response to this show, and it's sort of almost to me painful to the intellectualization of the first group of paintings that you looked at. I mean, you all had rather strong reactions to this um, that seemed very immediate, and I felt in, in the case of the other work, you were striving for something and reading into it, you know, and somebody asked a question about whether you needed to see the video, I thought that was spot on. Okay, thank you. Yeah, that's, a, that's a valid criticism of us and the job we did. But it's also, I would suggest, some work draws you in to its, its inner meaning, partly because it has an, a formal austerity, as in the case of um, I um, and Z, um, um, or because it has a sort of romantic uh, melancholy intrigue, as in the case of Slater, and other work which just leaves you kind of not caring or knowing what it might be about, um, you're left to say, well, okay, but it is, we're here, it's uh, material on support, let's look at the material on the support. All right, okay. Um, I had read that she limited herself to five colors and five canvases. Uh, and, and all these five paintings were actually made with only five colors, and I would like to ask the panel, the, Panel, what do you think of this limitation? Is this part of the art? Is it important? Is it limiting? Uh, and the and the gooey stuff, by the way, was rabbit glue. Okay. Rabbit skin glue. Sorry. Rabbit, rabbit skin glue. Rabbit skin glue. Yeah. Yes. Well, Mondrian limited his colors. 
didn't hurt him. Ed Reinhardt limited his colours, very rigidly, as a matter of fact. I don't even know black is a colour. Right. J Judith Murray limits her colours to five as well, but with rather startlingly different mm. effect, I'd suggest, to my eye. I think it's a series, and in a way, um, that idea is fairly interesting. Uh, it's like those five paintings belong together, that uh, they should stay together because they mm -hmm. are in this similar color thing. But if you really want one, you can have one. <laughs> <laughs> I limit my colors. I'm curious to know how you came about to choose Schnabel to be one to be discussed. Well, we have to have a really pretty celebrity to talk about. No, actually, um, to be honest, one of our panelists uh, put it forward, and I thought it was being put forward because that panelist was um, wanting to say something positive. Um, otherwise, there were dozens of great shows we could have been talking about. Um, and... Um, so that's why. Oh, yes. Let me take a moment just to... Um, honestly, this is sounds... Uh, as as in, embarrassingly simple as this is, I'm, I, I live in Berlin, and I just came in for a couple of days to do this. And I have never really thought about her work before, so I wanted an opportunity where I was forced to come up with an opinion. That's, that's I wanted to be forced to go and see her show. Okay. Well, we forced you. Yes. And I have an opinion. Good. It's not the positive one, we hoped, but it was... Yeah. The, the process... Uh, I'm... Let me just say one word uh, about the process of how we select shows, because it, it often comes up and people are very interested. Um, it's quasi-democratic in that I ask the guests to identify half a dozen shows on a short list of elig eligible shows, which is a solo show of a recent body of work um, by an artist who's not hitherto been discussed at the review panel and that's on at least two weeks before today and at least until today. So that narrows it down usually to about 80 or 90 shows. And um, I send that quote-unquote short list to the panelists and say, look, uh, please identify maybe around half a dozen shows that you'd have some strong opinion on on this list and if possible... Uh, identify which ones you'd have a positive opinion about. Um, and uh, from that, I then curate a little uh, collection that maybe has some points of common between the artists, but more importantly, should have a, um, a spread, uh, a contrast of uh, mediums, generations, sensibilities, materials, etc. And also degrees of reputation. If you've got some very well-known artist, such as Ai Weiwei, we should have some unknown young emerging artists, such as Miss Schnabel. But um, anyway, that's how, we, that's how we try to put together the menu. And, um, well, sometimes the, the dessert is not as sweet as it should have been. The but other thing I wanted to say, just about why I felt like I wanted to be forced to come up with an opinion about her work is because I also write about fashion and I write for fashion magazines and she's one of the people on the list because of her lineage who is 
um, really attractive to editors and is kind of the like the token artist. Often when in conversation with editors about not just art shows that are coming up, but um, who's an artist who kind of resonates and represents art for less art literate audiences. So I wanted to test her art credentials for myself by experiencing it firsthand. And I wanted to do it kind of without thinking about her either you know, fashion relevance or, or father, just as if she was artist, as she often is kind of on these lists with, with fashion editors. You know, there's um, a bunch of people who just for, for sort of a general audience kind of are like the physical embodiment of mm. art. Yeah, but also actually, uh, Anna, uh, considering the your interest in young female artists who work in traditional mediums and deal with romantic subject matter, um, she should. I, when I saw her uh, Schnabel, it's your choice. I thought, well, that makes sense. This is another Anna Fennell Honigman style <laughs> painter. So we'll mm. we'll get the lowdown on her from from Anna Fennell Honigman. But anyway. Um, Sorry, I'm uh, like a young man there girl. is waiting very patiently to, to let us know something. Yes. Um, yes. Uh, I was going to say something about the paint and the alternative, alternative materials in the uh, paintings. And it's not just rabbit skin glue. It's uh, asphalt, plaster weld, and copper plating solution. And that's why sometimes you would see in the painting that it would kind of bead and not, it's like, kind of like when you put water on top of oil, it's not soluble. And I also, when I was walking through the exhibition, um, I too picked up on some kind of European theme because it made me think a lot about Cecily Brown, not just with the way the painting is handled, but also in the subject matter. Great, okay, thank you very much. Good, those are, those are positive points of reference and bad ones. Great. Um, a further comment, a last comment for the evening on perhaps Bradley Slater, who we've rather been neglecting. It's always the, uh, the way that when you discuss two shows and then open it up. Not a comment, but a, a question. David, mm -hmm. uh, uh, when you started out, you said you couldn't resist the temptation of putting the two Chinese together, and obviously that left the two Americans together. How did you... What, what was your thinking in the end to make the order that way? No, it wasn't that I wanted to put the Chinese together. It's that, it's that uh, um, I, I wanted to keep them separate, but then when, if I did that, I, we would have ended up with... Uh, uh, it, would, it would have just... The order would have been... It, we'd have probably ended up with uh, Ai Weiwei, and that it would have been difficult to... You know, it's just, just logistics, really. N nothing, nothing very heavy. Um, but. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, I'll buy that. <laughs> yes. What I thought was the Chinese. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you very much. Next time I'm jet lagged on a return trip from China, I will call upon you to moderate in my place. Thank you very much. Uh, and I hope you've all got the. F Did you get the flyer for next month's? Uh, good. Good. So we'll see you on. Uh, See you on February the 24th. Thank you very much. Wonderful. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs>